Welcome to Island Baptist Church. Today's sermon is in Luke 3, Seven Terrible Names. We're in Luke chapter 3, and working our way through the book of Luke, started back in August, and if you've been with us, I know a lot of you are here for the first time in a while, maybe the first time ever. I hope it goes well for your sake. <laughs> and the rest of you who are here off and on or all the time, you know we've been at it for and Luke for since August, and uh, you can stick with us, by the way. You don't have to be here. We're, we're online, and uh, we do live stream. These services are being live streamed, so whatever you say can and will, you know, be live streamed anyway. I don't know about held against you in a court of law, but um, so you can follow our services, follow our sermons, and, and that thing also on our website. You can do that uh, where the sermons are, are loaded there. You can, you can hear those uh, audios of those. Luke 3 is uh, just where we find ourselves, having started back in August, making our way through, just now finished uh, chapter 2, which is the beautiful narrative of the nativity and, and just the gorgeousness of all that. And uh, we're graduating into chapter 3. Chapter 3 is kind of where everything starts. Uh, of course, the birth of Jesus has got to be born to become a man, but here he is a man in chapter 3, as we're going to see. And we start uh, the full ministry of, of Jesus, and it's introduced by the ministry of John, of course. And so, such an immense amount of variety. Just from a textual perspective, uh, with regards to the scriptures, uh, uh, all kinds of things you find here, profound theological issues, fascinating narrative stories, uh, very practical application passages, uh, prophecy, uh, historical information. Uh, why all this variety? Well, the simple answer is, is because that's the way God wants it. So um, here's, here's a better answer for us, though. Every time you come across a part of the scriptures, you don't understand why it's there. Here's your answer. Whatever. What is that? Whatever was written in earlier times, was written for our instruction. It's good for you. You need it. Parts you don't like, especially, is stuff you need to dig into. So that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Don't you want hope? Scripture holds that. Uh, you're not going to find it on the news. I don't know if you've noticed lately. Uh, it is in the scriptures. The real news is what's in the Bible. That really is what's going on. That's what's going down. What the Bible predicts, what the Bible says, that's what's really happening. That's the real universe that we live in, not a fake universe created by uh, whoever wants to say. So, so beginning here in Luke 3 is very historical in nature, the part that we skip, and actually verses 1 and 2 are particular verses that we skip. It's got names that we don't know, people we don't understand, and as far as we're concerned, we don't need them in our lives. We just want to know about Jesus, and I understand that. We also need to understand Luke isn't just randomly picking stuff out and putting it in front of us. First of all, He's inspired by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit puts something in front of you, you need to take it. Some parts are good to take, some parts are not that fun, some part I don't understand. Take all of it because it's your medicine, because that's what it says, it's for your hope, it's for your encouragement. And so we're gonna let this stuff wash over us for sure uh, this morning. And so what we have here is Luke setting up for us the drama of the life of Christ. Before he does that, he's gonna set the stage for us. He's gonna decorate it for us, the, the scenery of the, where we are historically, where we are politically, where we are socially, where we are in a religious sense. All this scenery has got to be set first so that we could push forward into the drama of the life of Christ. And so the scene is being set for us here by um, seven terrible names he's going to mention here, and we're going to find out why they're terrible. But let's look, take a look at them here in verse 1 of chapter 3. Now, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. There's, there's a date for you right there. He gives us a year, no month, no day, any, but a year. When Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Iteria and Trachonitis, and 
Lysanias was the tetrarch of Abilene. He's the only Texan in the whole group. <laughs> and the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. And the word of God came to John. It's in this context, in this situation, that the word of God comes to John. We know him as John the Baptist, uh, the son of Zacharias in the wilderness. So from chapter 2, verse 52, last verse of chapter 2, to chapter 3, verse 1, 30 some odd years have passed. The babies, or maybe less than 30 years, but the, the men who are now, people who are now men here in chapter 3, namely Jesus and John, are, were babies in verse 52 of the previous chapter. 30 years of obscurity passed. Uh, these, these men were born under um, miraculous circumstances. John coming to a couple who were in their 60s or 70s. I'm not sure if you would call that a, it would definitely be a miracle, but I'm not sure if you would call that a blessing or not if you were 60 or 70. And then, of course, Jesus coming as, as a, revert of a virgin, virgin conceived Son of God, born in some situation where he's laid in a manger. I mean, amazing circumstances. Well, 30 years have elapsed with nothing else happening. So effectively, people have forgotten. And that's what happens. You know, you sleep a couple of times, and I forget what happened. And it's the same way for these people. They've moved on with their lives. And whatever stories happen with these young men, one has moved off to the wilderness, another one was raised in obscurity in a small town in the north part of Israel, Jesus. And so... People have forgotten, but God has definitely not forgotten. The last, last we've heard of, of both of these uh, uh, people was when they were very young. Here's what it says about Jesus. Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. This is 30 years before. And then also John in the first chapter, 30 years before, the child continued to grow and to become strong in spirit. And he lived in the desert until the day of his public appearance. And so that's all we've known about them. 30 years have lapsed between two chapters. And uh, so here we are now in uh, starting this drama, like I said, this, of the story of Christ. And, and nonetheless, even though it's been in obscurity, these men have grown, it's still, this is what's going on for sure. The fullness of time, that's what's happening. Uh, everything is being set for the drama that God is about to, to portray in all the earth. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. And even though no one knew about it, I mean, God was doing a whole bunch of stuff, and you know what? Nobody knew. So I would suggest to you a possible application of that is God doing a whole bunch of stuff right now that you don't know about. And always good stuff. So with, with the evil and the horribleness and these seven terrible names we're going to get to in just a minute, nonetheless, in, in the obscurity, God is working a great plan of salvation and moving on behalf of people. And so we need to understand that and at least that's a, at least an initial lesson we can get from this passage so let's let's look into this history and what what luke is describing for us here like i said names we typically skip but that which the holy spirit is, has left for us because we need them we need to understand and so we're going to be seeing these things first of all we need to look at the call of john john the baptist it says the word of god came to john what does that mean the word of god in verse two the word of god came to john here's the word of god right did like a bible fall and like hit him in the head or something by the way, I've, I searched the internet for a picture of John that I thought was accurate, which I don't know what that means to you. Here's the one I thought was accurate. There's John. <laughs> this is John. John's a wild man, and not in a negative sense. But he's living in the wilds. He's also, if you'll remember about his birth situation, the angel predicted that he would not, he, no wine would ever touch his lips, which meant that's a special thing. He's a very unique person because this is a culture that everyone drank wine, even children. 
because you had to have something to get rid of the bugs in the water. Water was not purified like in our circumstances. So for him to not drink wine would make him a very unusual person. It, 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 it betrays a vow that was taken for him, very similar to a vow that Samson was taken, taken for him by his parents and one that Samuel was taken by his own mother, that neither wine would touch their lips nor would we ever touch a dead body nor would their hair ever be cut. So part of your picture you need to have of John the Baptist in the wilderness is one bushy-headed dude. 30 years old, never had his hair cut, what that look like? So you thought, well, he's going to be weird because he eats grasshoppers and, and uh, wild honey and wears camel skin. I would suggest to you that would be the least of his issues. The fact that he's got hair down to his waist, that would be a big issue. So this unusual person, this weird person, living in the wilderness, the call of John, the word of God came to John. The Bible didn't fall out of heaven and hit him in the head. Uh, what it says here basically is giving you a formula when it says the word of God came to John of how God calls most everyone he calls in the Old Testament period. Watch. Call of Abraham. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Watch. Samuel. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. Word of the Lord comes to Elijah, right? Word of the Lord comes to expressly to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi. We could go through all the Old Testament prophets. You're going to find the same scenario, the same set of words, this this formula of it says that God's bringing them. Hosea, Joel, Jonah, Micah, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, uh, Malachi, all these guys, the same formula. It, it, all it is is simply saying God calls them. God that reaches a point in life where the fullness of time for whatever purpose they have, and God comes to them and says, listen, now is the time for you to do the things I've called you to do. So John's been in the wilderness for 30 some odd years. Parents passed away a long time ago, living off of locusts and honey, and, and by the way, eking out of existence. You may say, well, what a weirdo. Why would he ever eat locusts and honey? Because have you ever been to this place? You would know that there ain't nothing else out there. By the way, anybody here eat shrimp? Nothing but an underwater grasshopper. <laughs> I'm not messing with you. I'm telling you the truth. I've got a degree in fish. What a grasshopper eats above ground is what a, what a well, even more so what a what a shrimp eats blow in. So don't knock John for eating grasshoppers. <laughs> Camel skin, because that's what he had. Wild honey, be great, grateful to have that. And uh, so that was, that was John's situation. So the call of John is the, is the scenario that he's setting up for it, but he wants you to know what's the backdrop of all of this. What's the, what's the uh, environment like? Not just what time it was, that is of a year, but the times, what were they like? And so that's where we are here, these historical, political, religious setting of these seven terrible names are gonna give us this clear indication of what they are. And the times were, very simply, terrible. That's what they were. The reason why I'm saying these seven terrible names because they're terrible people and they're in charge. And I don't know if you've ever noticed what happens. Terrible people have a way of making other people's lives terrible. They just do. Stay away. If they ever get in charge, you're going to be in a bad way if you're underneath them. So vote them out. Keep them out. Quit that job if you can. Wait till you find another job, though, because it's kind of hard to get a paycheck without a job. But terrible people just have a way of doing that. This, because these terrible people were in charge, it was dark, desperate, oppressive, apostate, hypocritical times. Starting with the first name. Tiberius Caesar, here he is. Uh, I, I bet he wasn't that good a shape. But if you're Caesar, you say, listen, I need you to cut a little bit here and a little bit there and make my chest feel a little bit bigger. Catching some sun there on the Mediterranean, Tiberius Caesar was the emperor of, 
of all the world. He's the son-in-law of Caesar Augustus, who was the Caesar that was uh, on the throne when Jesus was born. If you remember the story, Caesar Augustus. Well, this is his son-in-law. Caesar Augustus and Tiberius Caesar didn't like each other. In fact, on the level of hate, they did not like each other. Nonetheless, he succeeds Caesar Augustus because Caesar Augustus, he's Caesar Augustus' son-in-law. I don't know how you know about in-laws working, but I, back then, they had in-laws could have problems. I know they don't now. All in-laws get along. Back then, they had problems, and Caesar Augustus did not like his son-in-law, but he was married to his daughter, and he was having Caesar Augustus' grandkids, whom Caesar wanted to keep enthroned, uh, in power. And so he has the Roman Senate appoint Caesar Tiberius as his co-regent in the waning years of his administration. Last four years of administration, he... Caesar Tiberius and Caesar Augustus were reigning co-regency. So when it says here, and I'm saying this because when it says here that it's in its 15th year of the reign, the question is, which 15th year? Because the 15th year from the beginning of his co-regency to the very end, or the 15th year from the beginning of his sole regency? You say, well, why in the heck does that matter? Because it matters because it affects all of your calendars today. Or, or let me just put it this way. None of your calendars are correct because we didn't understand, or the historians didn't understand what Luke was saying right here. Because of what Luke says here in verse 1, all of your calendars are off by four years. It wasn't your choice. But 300 years after the fact that Luke writes this, they're reading Luke's passion to say, in the 15th year of Caesar uh, Tiberius, well, that must have been his 15th year from his sole regency. After Caesar Augustus dies, he becomes sole regent. Then they started counting time from that point on, and they made an assumption and an interpretation of what Luke says here. The problem that it is is that it was just simply wrong. It was four years off. So from that calendar, we started dating Jesus' administration or ministry at 30 years old. We back up 30 years, and we have the date of his birth, which they called A.D. 1, with the year, which means in Latin, the year of our Lord, 1. The problem with it is, is that technically, or not technically, in reality, Jesus had already been alive four years by that time. They didn't realize this. Luke was counting by his co-regency, and the historians 300 years later were counting based upon his sole regency, and so what winds up happening is, is that all of your calendars are wrong uh, by four years. So we're just four years off. Again, the problem was that we've been already doing this for 800 years, and so instead of going back and adjusting everybody's birthdays and everybody's anniversaries and all the nations and all the different treaties and all this stuff, we just went back and simply said, okay, Jesus was born in 4 B.C., Get over it. Just get over it. That's when it was. Another problem that it's caused in recent years, how many remember the hype of, the, the hype, the hype of uh, Y2K? The year 2000. Year 2000, especially among Christians, like prophecy buffs like myself. Oh my goodness, 2,000 years since the coming of Christ, God's surely going to do something, right? I mean, it's 2,000 years. 2,000's got to be a big deal. God's going to do something. We're all scared, you know, the really weird ones go out and sell the farm and buy a white robe and meet us on a hill because the Lord's coming back, you know, kind of stuff. The problem about it is, is that we got all stirred up about it, and Y2K, the actual Y2K, had already passed four years before. <laughs> so, oh well, anticlimactic. And the reason for it is, it's not this guy's fault, and it's not Luke's fault, it's because our historians some 300 years later interpreted Luke wrong. That, that's where it all came from. That's where all of it was set from. So, back to this guy. 
Tiberius was typical Caesar. Thought he was God. Others thought he was God. He was worshiped as such. You had to make sacrifices to him. Uh, completely pagan. He saw the Jews, and that's the concern here because that's the nation of the Jews, and John is a Jew, and Jesus is a Jew, and this is all happening on the land of Israel. Uh, he saw the Jews as nothing but a paycheck. This guy did. Uh, descended into great levels of dementia. I mean, he was already uh, full of himself completely, but he suffered from dementia in later years, 15, 18 years of administration, he suffered from dementia. I don't know if you've ever been around a person with dementia. Most of the time they're good. Sometimes they're really off, and it's really bad when they're off because that's reality for them, and they can't help it, and they can't control it. It's really bad, though, for everyone else if that person has all the money, all the power, and all the armies. That's what was going on with this guy. So what was it like for anyone under his administration? You woke up in a new world every single day. Of course he did. And that's what happened. His, 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 his waning years, historians call the reign of terror because he was losing it. And the world he was in control of was also therefore losing it. So we move from this terrible name to another terrible name, a guy by the name of Pontius Pilate, a name probably recognized the best, just simply because he's involved in the trial and the ultimate crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Pontius Pilate was a Roman. He's not a Jew, not a Middle Eastern, he's Italian. Pontius Pilate ruled from 26 AD to 36 AD, according to our current calendars, not according to the real calendar. Uh, last of a series of five prefects. So Rome, um, Rome appoints Herod as king of the Jews. He's the king when Jesus is born, Herod the Great. Herod the Great bought that title. But when the, the wise men come to town and say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? He had a huge problem with that. So as soon as the wise men leave, he has armies sent into Bethlehem and kills every baby boy below the age of two based upon when they said they saw the star. This guy was, like I said, a real piece of work. Herod passes away within a year or two after that event. He appoints his son, Herod Archelaus, uh, to be king after him. Herod Archelaus is a worthless individual. Rome deposes him and sets a prefect government. That's what, that's what Pilate is. He's a prefect. He's the last of five prefects to come to this position of power over the most populated area of Judea, which includes Jerusalem and the surrounding area. Pilate, he's a Roman. He's in charge as a prefect. Here's what a prefect's responsibilities were. Number one, to make sure that Rome got their taxes paid on time from the locals. Number two, really only two jobs. One, to make sure taxes came in. Number two, to kill anyone who got in the way of that. That's all he did. That's all. So anything, anything else was third or fourth or whatever in that list. And so therefore his rule, like all prefects of Rome, uh, were, was characterized by briberies, insults, robberies, frequent trials, executions, endless savage ferocity over the Jewish people. What were the times like according to Luke? Terrible. Horrible. Because guys like this, terrible names were in charge. All we know about him is the trial of Jesus, and that's very little. You know very little about him. Maybe you see him at his best probably there. But most of the time, mm, not a guy you want to be around. Not a guy you want to have in charge, but they couldn't do anything about it. The next guy on our list, we're looking here at Luke, uh, verse 2. Next guy is a guy by the name of Herod. His name is actually Herod Antipas. There's a bunch of Herods in your Bible. Starts with Herod the Great, Herod Archelaus, Herod Antipas, one of the surviving sons of, of Herod the Great. Remember, Herod kills two of his sons, kills this, one of his wives, kills his mother-in-law, because 
That's the kind of guy he was. Uh, one of his surviving sons, the name of Herod Antipas, uh, he's the Herod that is very much involved in the life of John. He's the Herod that has John arrested. Remember why? Because John was out in the wilderness saying that his relationship with Herodias was an adulter- adulteress, and it was. Herodias originally was married to Philip, the, the next guy on the list, his brother. But uh, Herod Antipas, oh, I got a picture of it, by the way. Somewhere. There he is. Looks kind of like a linebacker or something to me. I don't know. He's got this big old forehead. Looks like he's been boxing with that nose anyway. He seduces Herodias away from his brother Philip, and John the Baptist in the wilderness is saying, that's a sin, and it was. But this guy's in charge, so what he does is he has John arrested to make him shut his mouth, puts him in a dungeon. Herodias wants him killed, but Herod Antipas doesn't want to kill him because he's afraid of the people because he's a politician. In his heart, he wants to kill him, but he's afraid of the people, and he's trying to kiss up to them in Rome at the same time, and anyway, he's got a dilemma that way. But his wife is not a politician at all, and so she's trying her best to figure out a way to get John killed, and so she remembers, because this guy's a weirdo, that he's a pedophile. So she knows that she takes her little daughter, who she conceived under another marriage, and has him dance in front of her, and that at the end of that dance, she can ask anything of Herod, and Herod will give it to her. Sure enough, he did. So what did she ask for? The head of John the Baptist. So he got it. Got him in front of his friends saying he would do anything, and then sure enough, he had to do anything. He had to behead John the Baptist. And so that's this guy. It's the same Herod, by the way, who gains an audience with Jesus on the night he's betrayed. He goes to Pilate, remember, or actually goes in front of the Sanhedrin, goes to Pilate. Pilate sends him to Herod. Which Herod? It's this one. Herod tries, he, he thinks Jesus is some kind of freak show. He wants Jesus to do magic in front of him. Jesus doesn't even answer a single question to him. So he dresses him in a robe and bows before him and blasphemes and, and curses him and sends him back to Pilate to be executed. That's, that's this Herod. This is the same guy who builds the city of Tiberias, which is still up on the Sea of Galilee. Beautiful city today. It was a large city back then. It was his, the seat of his power uh, there in northern Galilee. He, he, um, he was doing it. He named it Tiberius just to kiss up to the emperor, which, of course, would have been an important thing since that was his job. He does it, though, thumbing his nose of the Jewish people. The best place to build the city was the place the Jews had already decided was going to be a burial place for their ancestors. They'd been buried there for hundreds of years. So right next to this hot spring. So he decides he wants this city there, so guess what he does? He just puts the city right over the top of the Jewish graves. He doesn't care. And so they thus hate him, and probably for good reason. So there's our next terrible, third terrible name, or fourth terrible name is this guy right here, the brother to this Herod, a guy by the name of Philip. Uh, he's uh, ruled the area, a slice of Israel, and each one of these guys is getting a slice. Pontius Pilate's got a slice, uh, Herod's got a slice, Philip's got a slice, here's uh, Lysanias also, the area of Antioch, Tetrarch of Abilene, it says there. Um, he uh, ruled a remaining portion. Why does Luke give us these names? Because he wants us to know that the, the country of Israel is not Israel anymore. It's totally dominated by Gentiles. Now, if this was a Jew, Jewish crowd, when I say that, you should all turn your head and spit. Puh. Gentiles controlling the Jews? Puh. By the way, let me just say this to all of us Gentiles here. I think we're all Gentile. Even if we aren't, it doesn't matter. It's terrible when the Gentiles rule the Jews. It's terrible not just for the Jews. It's terrible for the Gentiles. It's never a good thing. No, don't, don't get involved in it. Don't vote for it. Don't look for it. When you see our world making decisions for what happens in Jerusalem... No way, no, at all. It's not a good thing. Always bad. It's always bad. When it's bad in Jerusalem, 
it's bad for all of us. So that's why it says a major prayer in the Old Testament is pray for the peace of Jerusalem because in it is your peace. That's exactly the way the city's named. In it is your peace. So pray for the peace of this place. Well, this place had no peace because individuals like this were in control. So Gentiles were in control. Uh, Lysanias, Philip, uh, Herod, Antipas, Pontius Pilate, and over all of them, Tiberius, Caesar. Gentiles were in control. They were wicked, these four. Uh, Low-ranking, petty kings. They left Israel occupied, oppressed, in bondage, unlike they had ever been all the way back to when pharaohs were throwing their baby boys in the Nile River. They had never seen a life like this. They had never been so out of control of themselves and out of control of their country. They were completely oppressed, completely dominated. They made no decisions for themselves. They had no ownership of anything. As long as they bowed the knee to individuals like this, they did, they did okay, but, but nothing else. And so this is the first of uh, uh, five of the horrible names, and we haven't finished the list. There's seven of them. So we finished with the Gentiles. Now we're ready for the Jews. The remaining two on the list, Annas and Caiaphas, are the worst of the names, I would submit to you. The reason why it is, is because they're no more wicked than people like this, but, but what they do, their corruption is with the cloak of righteousness. What they do is under the guise of honoring God. And let me just say this to you about your current situation. They're the most wicked people in your world today are people like that. The most wicked people in the world today are people that stand in positions like mine, and yet on, they have a separate life that is not godly and they're trying to pull the wool over on you these are the worst people in the whole world they're more wicked than people like this this guy was just an honest old pagan he just living the way he was raised these guys annas and caiaphas they knew exactly what the scripture said and they did the exact opposite jesus reserved his greatest condemnation for people like this they're terrible these guys were terrible first of all just as uh First thing we can note here, it says in the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Now, hello, just a minute. I, I read the Bible, and I see that there's only one priest at a time, high priest. So why do we have two? So immediately you know something's rotten in Denmark. Why, why are these guys neglecting what the Scripture says on a basic level of what they're supposed to be doing? How can they both be high priests? Well, they can't, according to the Bible, but they're doing it anyway. It's a mark of the way they're running things. Another thing you need to know about these guys is that they're, they're Jewish, but they're not Levites. So wait a minute. Last time I read the Bible, only priests could be, only Levites could be priests, and they had to be of the line of Aaron. You'd be right about that. These guys are not. So how did they get, become priests? Glad you asked that question. Rome is in charge. Rome knows that Jews don't think politically, and they don't honor Rome, but they do, they think religiously, and they do want to honor God, and so they want to, so Rome decides we're going to take over the high priesthood. That's exactly what they do. Rome begins to appoint high priests, beginning with Annas, continuing with Caiaphas. So Annas runs his term, and this is not a picture from the Bible, this is somebody's interpretation of it and everything. Oh, excuse me. So don't get all excited about this picture, but just, I thought it looked good, so I'll put it up there. So Annas runs his term, he steps down, he goes to Rome and says, I want you to put my son-in-law, that's who Caiaphas is, as high priest. So what happens is Caiaphas becomes the figurehead, and Annas stays in the background and continues to run the show. That's the reason why Luke names them as both high priests, because that is actually the way it was. So these, why, why does that matter? 
Well, first of all, because God said that you shouldn't do it that way, but also because the reason why they're doing it this way is because effectively what you have here is a Jewish crime family. These are crime bosses you're looking at. That's what they were. And they ran a racket, let me tell you, that any Sicilian crime boss would be proud to have. They've made money off of people in illegal ways, especially biblically illegal ways, unimaginable. Let, Let me give you an illustration. So you live in Galilee, pretend, 90 miles away. On a regular basis, you're going to Jerusalem to worship God because that's required of you. Three times a year, every male, able-bodied male, had to make it to Jerusalem. You're probably going more than that. But every, when you go, you're taking all your family, and it's a special trip. And it's a, you know, we, we come to church once a week. They, would, they may not make church except once a year or three times a year, given what the situation may be. So it was a big deal. So you were very careful to bring your best clothes. You were going to plan to bathe yourself. You're going to be anointing yourself and all this. You would bring your best animals because sacrificial system was the way you worshiped God. You, you had to have something. Something had to take the place of your sin, and so this animal sacrifice is going to take the place of your sin. So you go through your flock. You pick out your best sheep, your best lamb. You take him with you. You travel the 90 miles on foot or on a camel or a donkey or whatever. You rise from Jerusalem to worship God. You get to the temple door. You're ready to sacrifice this animal as this process of worshiping God with your whole family is, is, is uh, taking place. And these two guys are standing there, and they said, that's not an acceptable lamb. So what do you do? Well, you call your brother because he's going to be flying in this afternoon, and he can bring one. You're 90 miles away from your house. You spent most of your money getting there. And the rest of the money, you're going to have to provide for your family living in some kind of inn of some sort or camping out around the city of Jerusalem. This lamb is all you've got. These guys say it's not acceptable upon what basis? Because they say so. Because they're in charge. Because they call the shots and you're down there and they've got you over a barrel and they know it. So they say, we have an approved lamb that we will sell you. You hear the racket? So you've got to find money somehow, and you're going to pay probably three, four times what your, the value of that lamb is to buy that lamb, because now you're in Jerusalem, you can't get away. And they will take, by the way, because they're gracious people, they will take your lamb that you brought that they said is unapproved on um, trade. Pennies on the dollar they're going to give you for it. They're going to sell you this one for way more than what it's worth. And then, because they've got you over a barrel, what are you going to do? Come all the way to Jerusalem, not worship God? No. You're going to pay the price. And guess what they're going to do with the land that they took in on trade for pennies on the dollar? They're going to sell it to the next sucker in line for way more than what it's worth as an approved now lamb. Do you see the racket? That's these guys. They're, they're spiritually raping the nation of Israel. In addition, not only do you come with a lamb to worship God, you also come with money to worship God because there's a temple tax and you want to pay for your part of being a part of the Israeli government and a part of the worship system of God. The priests have to be supported and so you know that and you want to, again, heart to God. You're coming with a heart to God to honor him and these men are standing in the way of that. By the way, you show up with only coins they had available back then which either had the head of Herod on it or the head of Tiberius Caesar on it. And they had decided that they wouldn't accept those coins in their place. So here's what they're going to do. They're going to do you a favor. Don't, don't worry, we'll take care of you. We'll trade your coin for another coin of like value. So I got a $10 Tiberius coin. They'll trade it for a $10 temple tax coin. But they're going to charge you $5 upcharge to get that done. Every day, all day, 
thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people. By the way, you're going to come back next year. They're going to treat you the same way. Over and over and over again. What have they done with themselves? Can you understand why Jesus takes three cords, wraps them together, makes them in a whip, and rifles through the whole court of, of the temple, running out the money changers and the animal auctioneers? Because who was that? It was these guys. And by the way, not long after, the second time he does that, they crucify him because, you know what? He's messing with their racket. He's, they're, they're crime bosses. Mafiosos. That's what they do. This is the way they run things. They've turned, as Jesus said, the house of prayer into a den of thieves. So, so the, where, where are we in the whole scheme of things? According to Luke, Luke is trying to paint a picture for us here. He's trying to tell you, listen, the Jews have it bad everywhere. The Gentiles, Petui, are ruin, ruling them. The, 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 the Jews are, are uh, uh, they're being accosted by, by their leadership who are ripping them off, these crime bosses. They have nothing. They're completely oppressed. They're, they're completely in the dark. They're, they're, they just have a horrible circumstance. They're completely owned and dominated. And so, so it's amazing in that culture, in that circumstance, that the Pharisees, for instance, when Jesus says, you're in bondage, you need to be set free, that they respond with something like this. They answered him and says, we're Abraham's descendants and we have never yet been enslaved to anyone. What kind of hole is their head stuck in? They're completely enslaved. They're completely in bondage. They're completely overthrown. They have say over nothing. They're completely dominated. Their lives are totally miserable, and yet they have the gall to turn around in the face of the Son of God and say, you don't know what you're talking about. Well, what a joke. What a joke. Same kind of joke, by the way, going around today. People who, outside of Christ, who think they're going to be saved some other means by being a good person and going to church, who are control, controlled by sin and can't even control their own thoughts and cannot re release themselves from their sin nature. When you ask them how they're doing, they say, oh, I'm doing fine. What a joke. No, they're not. They're hell-bound. No, they're not. They're, they're in, at enmity with God, the God of the universe. Nothing's right about them, and yet they're going to tell you they're fine. Is that you? Where do you stand with Christ today? I'm not asking if you know who he is or what he's done. I'm asking you, where do you stand with him? The Bible says that salvation, listen to me, eternal life is not some formula. It's a person. His name is Jesus. Where do you stand with God's salvation? Where do you stand with him? I want to ask if you would bow your heads and close your eyes as we think about what God has done for us and what he began to do there in the ministry of John and bringing Jesus to the forefront, bringing salvation to these people. And they were oppressed in every way, but the most oppression that they had, the greatest oppression was their own sin. Needed to be forgiven. John goes into the wilderness and begins to preach repentance for forgiveness of sins. Repentance for forgiveness of sins. Our greatest need today is a right relationship with God, and that can only come through His Son, Jesus. There is no life outside of Him. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. Do you have the Son? Salvation is a person. Eternal life is a person. 
Have you trusted the person of Jesus? Have you called out to him to be your savior? I would invite you to do that today. God, I thank you so much for this story. Lord, I thank you for the, the setting that you've given to us in your word and helping us to understand what was really going on. And we look at the darkness these people were in and we wonder why they couldn't see it, why they were in denial. And yet we have to look at our own lives and say, how many times have we been in denial? How, how many people do we know that are, that are living a life that's a joke because they, they think they're fine because everything is going their way, it seems, but they're, they're in bondage. They can't control their own lives. They can't control their sin nature. They can't control their thoughts. They're, they're living a life that has a destiny for, for hell. They're not okay. They're not okay. Thank you, Jesus, that you came because you knew we weren't. Not because we asked. Not because we saw our darkness and blindness, but because you knew where we were and you come to tell us the truth. I pray that our eyes would be open, if not today, someday, God, to see the truth in our own lives and the lives around us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for visiting. Find us at www.islandbaptist.org.